Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, it's been uh, quite a week, and we've had some interesting news. I'll be covering some things at the top of the hour here. So let's start with... uh, just a little musing about something I learned uh, that I found ironic. I'll share the irony with you. Those high-end, that high-end organic tea that I was given in quote-unquote silk bags turns out to be actually rather unhealthy. And I'll uh, tell you all about that. It turns out that those silk bags are actually microplastic mesh, and they dump a fair amount of particulate microplastic and nanoplastic, even worse, because that can get into cells, into the water, Uh, especially boiling water, which is kind of how you make tea. Now, plastic's everywhere. It's in our grocery bags, shampoo, detergent bottles. Uh, We carry uh, plastic around. We know that heat causes plastic to release particles. That's why I warn people, unwrap the plastic packaging before you microwave something. Put it in a glass, ceramic, or uh, other, uh, even paper container, uh, but nothing that's lined in plastic. And be careful with food wrappings because most of the quote-unquote paper uh, food wrappings are, in fact, an amalgam of paper and plastic. So there's particles wherever we look. The latest research was... uh, fascinating little technique uh, looking at uh, plastics. It was done by, it it was published just now in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal, and it was done by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They looked at a couple of widely used plastic products, that plastic mesh, clear plastic sheets used in uh, baking liners and also food-grade nylon bags. Uh, They also looked at uh, single hot beverage cups, coffee cups, and the um, beverage cups they uh, they analyzed were just like your Starbucks cups, low-density polyethylene plastic film used as a liner. And they exposed them to hot water for 20 minutes, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, in other words, boiling water in a cup. They had to come up with a way to count the microparticles. There's a lot of particles in there that aren't microplastics. So they actually sprayed it onto a surface and then let it dry and then uh, filtered it. And then when they had the residue, they uh, exposed it to a vapor, an alcohol vapor, and then cooled it. And that caused the particles to swell large enough to be counted in a standard counter. So they went through quite quite a bit just validating their technique, but we're going to accept that it was valid. And what they found was the nanoparticles released from those little quote-unquote silk uh, bags of tea were seven times higher than what you got with the single-use beverage cups. So uh, pretty substantial, about 0.1% of the plastic that was, in other words, by weight of the tea bag actually ended up in your cup. And that may not sound alike, a lot until you realize that the that the nanoparticles uh, could get into side cells. Nano is cell size or sub cell size. Uh, one of the 
you know, uh, uh, so if they get that small, it's uh, it's really an issue. Now, the FDA has standards, and it says that food-grade plastic can lose up to 1% of its mass under high-temperature conditions. Well, I'm calling for that to be lowered uh, substantially. And in the meantime, because, yes, the speed that the federal government moves uh, with all deliberate slowness, well, don't wait. Instead, take your own coffee cup when you go in to get uh, coffee. See if you can get them to make your latte or whatever in a steel-lined cup. Possibly you'll have to buy it from the establishment in question or bring in your own mug. Lots of cafes let people do that. I suggest keep a nice metal-lined cup in your car and have your coffee in that or your tea. And just forget about the silk bags, for goodness sakes. Okay, new news that was all over this week was a discovery that uh, bacteria, certain bacteria at least, have been linked to more aggressive prostate cancer. And that can be a pretty big deal. Prostate cancer is very common, and most of the men who get it don't actually die of it. So it becomes one of these issues where do we... Uh, do we remove everyone's prostate? There's a lot of mortality and morbidity side effects associated with that that we'd prefer to avoid. It would be nice to know which were the more aggressive one. The study looked at uh, five spe- found five species of bacteria that were linked to rapid progression uh, of prostate cancer. And association there does not equal cause. It could be, in fact, that the more uh, ag- that the more aggressive cancers create more inflammation, more free radicals, and that creates a different environment, one that might be more favorable to these uh, anaerobic bacteria. But even then, it would be very useful as a marker, uh, and a pretty good marker too. Men who uh, had their early stage can- uh, prostate cancer have any of these five species of bacteria were 2.6 times more likely to see that early stage cancer progress rapidly to advanced disease. And we know that certain bacteria, such as Helicobacter pylori, raise the risk of stomach cancer. It's possible, and there's probably about five different mechanisms that the researchers have come up with that could, uh, well, that could could show that the, the bacteria are causal rather than just incidental. But either way, it's extremely important. How it works, we're not so sure, but that it's a good uh, predictor and maybe needs to be factored in to uh, you know, just run the genes, look for the genes for those bacteria when you are setting up the Gleason scale. Right now, we look at it under a microscope. We assign a Gleason score, which gives us a sense for how aggressive it's going to be. If it's under four, you sort of sit tight. If it's over seven, you want to operate or do radiation or some other ablative procedure. But a lot of people are in that six to seven gray zone, and this might be a very, the, you know, tumor genetics looking for these bacteri- bacterial 16S uh, ribosomal RNA, you could do that and get that up and running quickly. And maybe we should and do subsequent research that way uh, to validate it. But in the meantime, we we could scale this up fairly quickly. By the way, the big reveal, the bacteria were porphyromonas species, varivaculum species, peptonophilus 
species and Phenolaria species. And these were found uh, with a high rate of progression and also a high rate of metastasis. And so uh, they were also associated with more extracellular vesicles. That's a marker for tumors that we're beginning to see. So uh, let's go to our first caller. She called 831-900-5773. Hello, Maria. Welcome to the call. Hi, Dr. Don. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, it's kind of a question about um, a dear friend of mine in his early 80s who's very vital, but um, he g- became dizzy and he ended up getting a carotid ultrasound. And everything was pretty good, but it did say on the left internal carotid artery, uh, the percentage diameter of stenosis was 50 to 69%, mm-hmm. which is quite a range. Yes. <laughs> Um, and then the the cardiologist told him to, you know, maybe follow up with his primary care doctor about possibly getting on statins. But here's my question. Um, this is a man who historically, I've watched his labs over 10 years, and they're always in range. And there was no lipid panel ordered this year. And my question is sort of like, would a statin in somebody his age and his condition even change um, the diameter of blockage there in the carotid artery if he doesn't have a cholesterol problem? No, it wouldn't. Uh, but it would lower it would lower his risk for a stroke or a TIA. We have observational oh, data we have observational data for that. And I think the mechanism is probably in anti inflammatory. You see a a plaque uh-huh. not all plaques are created equal. And as we age mm-hmm. we're gonna develop debris dust and crap accumulates in our tissues, including plaque in our arteries. And you don't mm-hmm. see an 80-year-old with clean carotids. And actually, yeah, I the, would think so. Yeah. Uh, you don't see too many, like, severe street alcoholics who are 80. That would be the <laughs> only individual that where I would expect to see um, clean carotids because for some reason, wow. uh, being a severe alcoholic, you, you don't die of heart disease yeah. and you don't get uh, cholesterol mm-hmm. deposits in your arteries as a general rule. Uh, probably because they don't eat very much. You know, they subsist on, on ethanol. Mm. And uh, for whatever reason, that shifts the physiology and uh, the deposition of plaque is very low. But plaque is not created equal, as I said. So you can have stiff, hard plaque that's not going anywhere, but it's also not going to break open and chip away. Or you, can have infla- mm. or you can have inflamed plaque, which is a little softer and gooier. And that plaque uh, can crack. And if the plaque cracks, mm-hmm. uh, you mean black may not crack, but plaque cracks. And when plaque cracks, you've got mm-hmm. a, a potential for a blood clot. And that blood clot's going to blow off into it. the brain and cause, if you're lucky, a transient ischemic attack. If you're not lucky, a stroke. <laughs> now, the cutoff point in the 50 to 69 is funny. Ultrasound is a... It, you, if you're old enough to remember network television that came in not on a cable, but you had like a rabbit ear antenna, oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd, certain channels had snow. Well, ultrasounds, oh, yeah. if you look at them, there's lots of snow. And so the, oh. the measurement's definitely a fuzzy measurement because the image is okay. kind of fuzzy. That's why. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. 70 is, the, is where you start thinking about doing something about plaque. Be- oh, below, thank you. Yeah, below 70... The risk of plaque doing anything is uh, is lower than the risk of, of doing something about the plaque, like a surgery. 
So at the most for right. a fifty to seventy for, to, to a fifty to sixty nine, you're putting them maybe on an antiplatelet agent like dipyrimidol or aspirin, and uh, maybe mm-hmm. an anti-inflammatory like a statin. And those both work. They reduce the risk of a event. And I don't remember the number needed to treat is probably on the order of one and two, you know, 200, treat 200 people with two relatively benign agents and mm-hmm. prevent one stroke. So uh, it's reasonable. And the threshold for, you know, the threshold of, you know, treat 20 people to prevent something is like a, an imperative. But when you're talking about one in 50, that's kind of that's kind of where we're, we're flipping in the gray area as far as NNTs mm-hmm. go. In your friend's case, probably if he's wanting to stay natural, he could do things like um, a uh, a lot of fish oil, which has antiplatelet mm-hmm. properties. He could consider uh, using red yeast rice, which is a statin-like drug. Yeah. But if you go on a statin, and he may decide to, and that's fine. I I wouldn't object, and I would I would let it be the patient's choice. You've got to take CoQ10. Take, right. Yeah. Right. Got to take the CoQ10. We, got, we already bought that. Yeah, like yeah. 300 <laughs> milligrams. He needs that if he's uh, going to take the statin. Okay. And 300 milligrams. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that that's what I use to offset the statin. You can check a, a, a CoQ10 level. It's called an ubiquinone level, Q-U-I-O-N-O-N-E. But mm-hmm. that that is not usually done, but you can... You know, Quest does have that test, so you can you can yeah. get it. And a lot of the more alternative uh, labs will will run an ubiquinone for you as well. But you oh, okay. so you know there there are ways of doing it. The problem is that tells you what's in the serum. It doesn't really tell you what's in the cells, and that's where we what we care about. But mm. uh, you know, there, I had a, a lady who just started developing after 20 years on a statin. She's just started developing muscle weakness, went off her statin, mm-hmm. muscle weakness went away, went on a different wow. statin, muscle weakness came back. So there you I, go. I, I was like, well, you know, I guess you're not able to make with, with this on board anymore. You're just not, you're inhibiting that enzyme that makes it too much with the statin. So mm-hmm. we have to find other strategies. But I digress, mm-hmm. as usual. Any follow-up no, questions? No, that's really useful. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Very useful. Um, so he could he could pretty much choose to handle it with supplements, um, possibly red yeast rice or rice yeast, I would say, backwards. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, yeah, and then what about exercise? Is that helpful at all? I mean, I know oh, it's always. ACL. Exercise is yeah. always, always helpful. And, okay, you know, and the uh, the other thing, there's a logical fallacy in how you framed your question. So I just want to point out okay. to you that... I love it. Okay. So cholesterol creates an increased risk of coronary artery disease and it, artery disease in general. There, the, the baseline risk is not zero. The baseline risk is essentially one. So it's that's the probability of artery disease is one. And then... You say, well, it's one and a half times, so it's 1.5 now if you have this gene or you have this level of cholesterol. So you get a bonus increase in risk, but the but everybody has a risk. We we, we are born to die. Mm-hmm. So we have yeah, a risk of, as we age of coronary artery disease. And if, mm-hmm. if, if somebody lives to be 200, they're going to have vascular disease. It's just, mm-hmm. it's going to be there that, you know, they're, very, very, unless they're an alien and they're masquerading as a human, in which case, you know, Coming. well, yeah. you know, they are among us. I'm 
Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not certain of that. I'm not certain of that. Let's not go off the deep end here. It was joking. Let's not. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. All right, thanks for the call. And any follow, any okay. last questions? No, that's great. Thank right. you. Have Very a great much. day. Bye bye. So, a uh, little personal story, and then we'll get to some emails. So. I'll start by reading the article, Recalled Experiences Surrounding Death, More Than Hallucinations. Global Scientific Team Publishes Consensus Statement and New Guidelines. So this is a multidisciplinary consensus statement, and it was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Science. And the researchers in this study were from many different medical disciplines, neuroscience, critical care, psychiatry, psychology, social sciences, and many came from some of the world's most re- respected academic institutions. And they've been studying this phenomenon that we call the near-death experience. So we're talking Harvard, Baylor, University of California, Riverside, U- University of Virginia, Lots and lots of places, including universities in England, and all looking at the same phenomenon. They got together and put together a peer-reviewed consensus statement for the scientific study of recalled experiences surrounding death. So here are their conclusions. Uh, Due to the advances in resuscitation and critical care medicine, many people have survived encounters with death or being near death. These people, who are estimated to comprise hundreds of millions of people around the world, based on previous population studies, have consistently described recalled experience surrounding death, which involve a unique set of mental recollections with quasi-universal themes. I threw the quasi in. The recalled experiences surrounding death are not consistent with hallucinations, illusions, or psychedelic drug-induced experiences, according to several previously published studies. Instead, they follow a specific narrative arc involving a, a perception of, one, separation from the body with a heightened vast sense of consciousness and recognition of death, two, travel to a destination, three, a meaningful and purposeful view, review of life involving a critical analysis of all actions, intentions, and thoughts towards others, a perception of D, or four, being in a place that feels like home, and five, a return back to life. So item three, the experience of death culminates into previously unidentified separate sub-themes and is associated with long-term positive psychological transformation and growth. Next, studies showing the emergence of gamma activity and electrical spikes, ordinarily a sign of heightened states of consciousness on EEG in relation to death, further support the claims of millions of people who have reported experiencing lucidity and heightened consciousness in relation to death. And last, frightening or distressing experiences in relation to death often neither share the same themes nor the same narrative transcendent qualities, ineffability, and positive transformative effects. The lead author, uh, Dr. Parnia, explains cardiac arrest is not a heart attack but represents the final stage of a disease or event that causes the person to die. The advent of CPR showed us that death is not an absolute state. Rather, it's a process that could potentially be reversed in some people even after it started. What has enabled the scientific study of death is that brain cells do not become irreversibly damaged within minutes of oxygen deprivation when the heart stops. Instead, they die over hours of time. This 
allowing scientists to objectively study the physiological and mental events that occur in relation to death. So far, the researchers say evidence suggests that neither physiological nor cognitive processes end with death, and although systemic studies have not been able to absolutely prove the reality or meaning of the patient's experiences and claims of awareness, it has been impossible to disclaim them either. So lines for further research and uh, an analysis of how we define that. Now for my story, uh, I'm going to use his name. I know he wouldn't mind. But those of you who are longtime listeners to a former radio station where I used to have a program called KUSP may remember a man named Dale Owen, who also had a radio program and was a very important person in that radio community. Uh, Those of us who've continued on uh, in radio and were part of that do remember him very fondly. I had the great good fortune to be his doctor. And at uh, one point in his life, he developed cancer. He'd had a a difficult struggle with being a post-polio patient for most of his life, and uh, he's a very courageous man. As it became clear that he would die from his cancer, we had some long talks, and in one of them he related to me his near-death experience, which I'm going to share with you now. He had to have a surgery at the age of 17, and uh, during that surgery, uh, he had an anesthesia event and his heart stopped. And he became aware that he was out of his body and looking down at his body um, on the operating table as they attempted to resuscitate him. And he recalls a conversation uh, with a warm and loving entity who basically uh told him that it was his choice whether he stayed or went. And he thought about it for a moment and said, you know, I'd like to stay because I haven't experienced romantic love and I I want to have that in my life. And as soon as he expressed that, he found himself back on the table and waking up from his resuscitation. One of the sources of this courage, he was not a religious man in the sense of proselytizing. I have no idea what church he belonged to. It was never a part of our conversations, or even if he was in a church. But he had a certainty that there was something beyond that I think informed his life and certainly the courage with which he confronted the end of this chapter in it. Let's go to an email. This from our friend Shaul in Israel, a regular writer. Subject, inhibition of respiratory RNA viruses by a composition of ionophoric polyphenols with metal ions. Uh, Dear Dr. Don, I'm glad to be a friend of your wonderful podcast. What is your opinion of this article, and can we use it in a practical manner? So the article was, uh, I'll, tell, I'll give you the title. Uh, that was, well, I already did. That was in the subject matter. Um, This was from the University of Tel Aviv, and uh, the idea in brief was using zinc ions as a modulator of intracellular viral RNA replication. It's been known that uh, zinc is uh, an anti-infective and 
that it impairs, it appears to be able to reduce viral RNA load in vivo. And that's zinc that's normally, we measure how much zinc a person has by testing their blood. The article goes on to say, however, intracellular concentration of zinc is usually too low for achieving an optimal inhibitory effect. Various herbal polyphenols serve as excellent zinc ionophores with known antiviral properties. I'm going to talk about one, for example, thyme oil or oregano oil. Uh, A zinc ionophore means that the compound opens up a channel that would allow zinc to penetrate the cell. So in the study, they combined zinc picolinic with a collection of different flavonoids that have this property, and then they threw a little copper in there to balance the charge and found that this had uh, antiviral effects on cells, various types of cultures, cell culture, with a 50 to 95% decrease in the replication of a wide variety of RNA viruses, which I will not list, but of course one of them include in, included COVID-19. So they proposed this as an orally bioavailable therapeutic approach, and um, it's interesting work, but I think it has the it, it has a couple of issues, and one of them is you're opening the door to put a lot of zinc into tissues that don't ordinarily have that much zinc in them, and it's a little bit like. Uh, the bleach issue. I use diluted bleach on my surfaces to kill viruses, uh, but I'm not sure we want to increase intracellular levels of zinc in living beings. There's uh, a reason to believe that zinc can actually, uh, in small particles, can actually uh, be dangerous, and that comes from something called metal fume fever which is essentially a very highly inflammatory uh, disease that comes from uh, infusing, for breathing uh, vapor that is from certain kind of metals. For example, galvanized steel, which has zinc on it, is one of the classics. And what happens is the lungs become very inflamed. It's highly damaging to the tissues and also highly damaging to the barrier function of the lungs. So uh, a lot of scar tissue happening at the end of that. So a long way to go from cell culture to actual, well, uh, a long, it's a long road from doing something in cell culture and not killing the cells and doing something in a living entity and not killing it. So I certainly think, uh, interesting idea, you probably could take the uh, zinc picolinate and the bioflavonoids, and possibly they would marry in the intestines. Uh, I don't think you want to take a compound that has married them artificially uh, and without a substantial amount of validation, Shaw. So uh, not ready for prime time is my take on that. Okay, and we did get an email in the interval to uh, on air at ksqd.org. This from uh Jazza in Santa Cruz. Uh, Jazza wants to know, what are your thoughts on microlingual B12 at one at 10,000 micrograms of methylcobalamin? It's marketed by superior source as an alternative to B12 shots. And so, well, let's talk about sublingual. 
uh, first of all, you can absorb uh, fat-soluble vitamins. And so if they've packaged their B12 properly in liposomes, you certainly could absorb a fair amount of it under your tongue, which is, of course, what sublingual means. And who would want to take a B12 shot every day? Uh, Sublingual vitamin B is used uh, as a supplement, obviously. And if a person is just trying to raise their vitamin B levels because they're low, I think that is fine. I'd want you to uh, get a baseline level and then repeat it. 10,000 a day is a, a lot. I probably would say a couple times a week for that dose for maybe a month and then repeat the B12 level to confirm that you're actually absorbing it. If you're trying to treat anemia or some other disease, I would probably do the B12 shots until the anemia had resolved and you had a normal methylmalonic acid and some extra B12 stores in uh, your tissues. And then you could switch over to the sublingual and see if you could hold your levels in the normal range. So uh, it might work well enough to do the trick. I don't see a big problem with uh, sublinguals. I do know that some of that's going to end up in your gut and get absorbed or not absorbed, depending on your ability to absorb it. So people with severe autoimmune disease called pernicious anemia should probably get their stores up before they play around with that because of the possibility of nerve damage from that low B12 and allowing that to persist. So I hope that helps. Let's do uh, one more email. This was a fascinating one. This came from uh, a lady who didn't tell me where she came from, and I think I'll uh, keep her name uh, anonymous since I don't see explicit permission to use it here. Uh, Hi, Hello, Dr. Don. My husband and I have been listening to you for 25 years. I'm a 52-year-old woman, relatively healthy. We both have the utmost respect for your expertise and knowledge. I've been recently diagnosed with a Dieulafoy's lesion. A GI doctor in the hospital was not able to find it. I was bleeding for over a week and hemorrhaged in the hospital while having a second endoscopy. I was given the option to embolize the artery that was supplying blood to the area they thought was bleeding in the duodenum. The procedure was done through radiology. I'm now home recovering. I have so many questions, and I'm curious, uh, do you have an archived issue that uh, describes this condition? And uh, I wonder, uh, do you have any questions for me to ask when I go to Cedar sinai for my follow-up? Let's talk about this. This is one of those old-fashioned diseases. It was described by a French surgeon, Paul-Georges de Ulafoy. Ah, the good old days when, when you described something for the first time in the literature, you got, to have it, you got to have it named after you. I kind of wanted to have there be a Motika syndrome, but alas, I was born too late. Uh, we don't name things like that anymore. It causes about 1 in 20 of all GI bleeds in adults, so it's, it's not a rare condition. And what it is is a birth defect, basically. It's a large, torturous, small artery in the stomach wall, and it's bigger than it should be, and it's in an exposed area, so it can get scratched and bleed. And because it's not a normal blood vessel, and it's it's uh, kind of an aneurysm, really. It's uh, 
going to bleed a lot, and then you're going to have a hard time uh, keeping the patient from bleeding out. Now, in and of itself, it's not doesn't cause any symptoms, doesn't cause pain. It's just suddenly you have uh, severe rectal bleeding, or you start vomiting blood, and there's really nothing like abdominal pain or nausea. It's vomiting blood without warning, and uh, most there's many people who are probably walking around with this. Uh, there, they do also occur in the gallbladder, and those do cause pain. Uh, the gallbladder ones don't cause a lot of bleeding because the gallbladder is kind of small, but they do cause a lot of anemia. And uh, this is, has nothing to do with aspirin use, nothing to do with peptic ulcer disease. And most of them, 75%, are in the upper part of the uh, stomach right near the uh, the esophageal opening, actually, into the stomach. And uh, there are some in the duodenum, about 14% are there. And they're hard to diagnose, obviously. And one of the things that happens is you're doing an upper endoscopy for another reason, and you see a single protruding blood vessel, and you're like, oh my God, that's the dilophoise. And what you're supposed to do at that point, in that circumstance, is tattoo it, inject it with ink, so that you can find it again, because they hide under the surface. They deflate and then they're right there, but you can't see it. And uh, sometimes they can be found with ultrasound, but sometimes not. So in an emergency setting where the person is bleeding, you go back in there and just like your experience, they had a hard time finding it. I imagine they used ultrasound or maybe some kind of uh, angiography with an MRI machine to figure out where it was. It sounds like you had pretty state-of-the-art treatment. Uh, once they're treated, they're usually cured. So the good news is that uh, treatment is usually curative, rebleeding if it, it is not that common. And about 90% of people get long term control of bleeding. And uh, the endoscopic surgeries have taken the mortality from this down from 80% uh, to 8%, still too high. But there are multiple different strategies for treating it. And I'd say this is one of those things that I wish we had such good therapy for brain aneurysms. Uh, Embolization there often can cause issues. Embolization for this is almost always successful. Embolization, by by the way, is plugging the blood vessel by putting something in there that causes it to clot or, uh, close up and stay closed. Some good news and a really interesting study about pregnancy and epigenetics and exercise. So a new study just came out that showed it would, uh, that maternal exercise during pregnancy undoes some of the adverse epigenetic changes that occur if the mother is obese or on a high-fat diet. So what happens is when the mother is pregnant when the pregnant woman exercises her placenta secretes a key protein superoxide dismutase 3 and we're going to talk about why that's good but essentially this is a uh, an anti free radical protein so it re- you exercise creates free radicals the 
Protein is made to protect the body from free radicals, but it does more than that. It actually undoes some of the adverse epigenetics that just having a mother who is obese or eats a high-fat diet gives you. And right now, about 30% of childbearing women in Western and Asian uh, countries are now obese. That's 30%. That's an overwhelming uh, statistic to me. And we're we're expecting 630 million people worldwide to have type 2 diabetes by 2045. What we've happened is we're on a cycle where diabetes is no longer a genetic uh, disease. It's a lifestyle disease, and the lifestyle of the parent gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation. So if you're wondering what I'm talking about, go look up Dutch hunger study. I won't recap that here. We've discussed it enough times on the program. But think about this. 1980 is when obesity really starts going up in this country. There's a lot of things that might account for that. Uh, All of the food and plastic uh, starts about then. The uh, high fructose corn syrup starts about then. But between uh, 1980 and 2000, uh, a lot of people got obese. And a lot of them got pregnant. So now you've, let's say that's 20 years, you have your baby at 20 Now that baby, it's 2020, that baby's having a baby, and the odds that that baby is obese are excellent. Uh, Sorry, that that mother is obese is excellent. So now we're starting to get into that, what the grandmother did affects what happens to the offspring. The key to what's going on here with superoxidized dismutase is histone methylation. This is where bits of DNA get wound onto a kind of a spool and then a methyl group attaches to an amino acid in the tail of the histone, that, and it wraps the DNA and pulls it up into the spool, very similar to a spool of thread. If you've ever seen or used a spool of thread, you know there's a little cut on one of the edges that you're supposed to pull the thread up into so it doesn't unwind. There's a type of histone methylation that is decreased in the fetal liver when the mother consumes a high-fat diet or is heavy... Uh, obese herself, when that happens, that fetus's liver is never able to metabolize glucose properly or as well. But there's hope. The maternal effects on this obesity and the high-fat diet are reversed. So if you exercise, the epigenetics that may already be there gets undone. And exercise is what does it. Putting an antioxidant into the liver uh, didn't work. You you could give all the N-acetylcysteine you want, and it doesn't reproduce the results of the superoxide dismutase 3. This is probably a genetic effect directly on the, uh, the epigenetic changes rather than something to do with the free radicals is what, how I interpret that. So we're going we're gonna to think about what else that SOD3 is doing in the placenta and what other lifelong positive impacts it might have. But exercise during pregnancy, definitely something you want to be doing. And another thing you want to be doing during your pregnancy, particularly if you have a high risk of preeclampsia, following a Mediterranean diet during pregnancy was associated with a reduced risk of developing preeclampsia. And black women in particular appeared to have the greatest reduction of risk. This was published uh, today in the Journal of the American Heart Association. And uh, 
The Mediterranean diet, well, what is that? It's a diet that's primarily vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, olive oil, whole grains, and fish. So you'll notice the absence of chips, the absence of fast food, the absence of large amounts of uh, animal meat and animal protein in general. And uh, this is a very healthy diet for heart disease, right? We know that. But what we didn't know until this study came out was that it helps preeclampsia. This is a condition where people get severe high blood pressure. It damages their liver, damages their kidney, uh, often causes the baby to be born prematurely, often causes low birth weight, stressed infants. And by the way, if you were, if your mother had preeclampsia while she was gestating you, you have a higher risk for the rest of your life of high blood pressure and heart disease. And black women are at high risk for developing preeclampsia. And there hasn't been a lot of research on preventative treatments until this study was done. And it's the Mediterranean style diet was the intervention, a large group and a very ethnically diverse group because it was done at Boston Medical Center, which predominantly serves urban low income uh, women. Uh, in this study, half were a black, half were uh, about 28% were Hispanic, and the remainder were other uh, on the postpartum questionnaire. And they created a, a Mediterranean diet score and did some education and looked at what women were eating. And 10% of the study participants developed preeclampsia. That's a pretty high percentage. Uh, those who had any form of diabetes before pregnancy were twice as likely to develop preeclampsia. Again, diabetes, obesity. Uh, obesity was also twice as likely uh, to be linked to preeclampsia. And if you followed the uh, Mediterranean diet, it was 20% lower across the board. But what they found was that the that women with the lowest diet scores on following the Mediterranean diet had the highest risk, 78% for preeclampsia. Now, admittedly, there could be confounds related to uh, economic stress, even in a uh, poor, uh, low-income community, there are there's a range of what you can afford, and also location, food deserts. Uh, we're not trying to blame the victim here. We're trying to talk about how important diet is for a healthy pregnancy, and we should be doing everything we can to support this because these are the children that will be our t- tomorrow's society. Super important. We're going to do a little dive into the world of nano. And uh, the next couple of stories I'm uh, going to call Altered Carbon. There was a movie once called Powers of Tin, where you, you shrank down and got lower and lower and lower until finally you were on the atoms. And then you blew out and got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally you were doing like interstellar, intergalactic uh, scale. Just to teach you about the power of exponents, well, uh, let's move into the microverse and do with some nanotales, starting with a couple about altered carbon. So, fun fact. Uh, before being accidentally introduced into the New World by the 16th century slave trade, the yellow fever mosquito was a species native only to Africa. Highly adaptive, it has become an invasive species in North America. Kind of poetic justice, in a way, if you ask me. 
Recently published in the journal Insects, a newspaper describes how mosquitoes have evolved natural resistance to some chemical insecticides and offers an alternative called carbon black, a kind of carbon-based nanoparticle. Uh, these are microscopic um, materials made out of organic elements. The, they used a modified version of carbon black called Emperor 1800, which is actually often used to make black cars, apparently. And uh, these, the group was looking at, could this be used to control insect population? So, of course, we know that the yellow fever mosquito, the Aegis aegypti, you know, you're looking at Zika, Dengue, chicken, chicken gunya, a lot of bad uh, mosquito-borne diseases, and we would love to uh, eliminate them. Uh, so this works on mosquito larvae, and it works really well on pesticide-resistant mosquito larvae. In fact, oddly enough, uh, the longer you leave it in the water, the more effective it is against the pesticide-resistant larvae. Probably, this is evolution biting you on the behind again, uh, developing a uh, developing a, a uh, resistance to uh, anti to either antibiotics or pesticides actually probably selects for a mosquito who isn't as good at resisting other things. You've sort of specialized against insecticides, so uh, you're not as good at resisting carbon black. And the nice thing about this is it probably, just like silver or copper, would be really hard to develop, develop a, a uh, resistance to. Now, um, well, I wanted to just talk, in case you missed it, this is not, strictly speaking, nano, but the first outdoor wild study already happened. And it did use nanotechnology. It used CRISPR to create a mutation in male mosquitoes and uh, this began about um, well, a year ago in the Florida Keys. A company called Oxitec developed these insects and released 5 million engineered mosquitoes over seven months, and they've been tracking, and they are public presenting their results. So the engineered males carry a gene that's lethal to female offspring. When it's released into the environment, they mate with the wild females, and the female offspring die before they can reproduce. And so they... Uh, paid some private property owners in the Florida Keys and went out and put them out and then waited a while and collected eggs. And they reported that all the females that inherited the lethal gene died before adulthood. And uh, I was worried when I first started reading this article that, you know, you're going to collapse the food chain, guys. But no, actually, the food chain for insects in mosquito is intact. There's there's another... uh, bug, the black salt marsh mosquito, Aedes tianori, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> I'm even having trouble, Tianior yanacus is uh, 80% of the mosquito population of the Florida Keys, so the food chain, my friends, is safe. But let's talk about another kind of altered carbon, uh, graphene. Graphene is a form of carbon that's a single layer of atoms, and it's a wonder material according to uh, the researchers who just published in Nature Nanotechnology from the Delft Institute of Technology. It's very strong with nice electrical and mechanical properties, and it's extremely sensitive to external forces. Now, we're talking seriously, seriously sensitive here. Princess in the pea, move over. 
A single bacterium on the surface of a graphene drum generates random oscillations with its cilia. These oscillations are as low as a few nanometers. They could hear it using uh, a graphene member. They membrane. They could see it electrically and pipe it over to a speaker. These are extremely small oscillations on the cilia of the bacteria, which are way smaller than the micron, but they set up resonance because they're rhythmic, and the graphene sheet can pick them up. I mean, it's only a carbon atom uh, thick. Think about that. So what what they discovered was that it, it they could detect whether a bacteria was dead or alive if uh, they... If the bacteria are resistant to the, to an antibiotic, the oscillations continue. But when you put the bacteria on the on the drum and then it gave it the antibiotic and it was susceptible, the vibrations decreased slowly and then they were completely gone. And so, even just a single cell. But obviously, for a culture plate, uh, I can envision uh, this being used as a way, a rapid way to detect antibiotic resistance. It doesn't take 24 hours uh, or even two days. It takes a a couple of hours to know that you're on the right track with that bug. You could just see in the treatment of sepsis, for example, if you could just take the blood and spread it on the drum, uh, you'd know whether the antibiotics you'd given intravenously an hour before were actually capable of destroying the bacteria. It could be a really amazing thing. Now, of course, sound has been weaponized in terms of uh, imaging, as you all know, ultrasounds, and sound has been weaponized in terms of uh, breaking up kidney stones, lithotripsy, very effective therapy. Uh, sound has been weaponized to treat prostate cancer. Jury's still out on whether that's a superior therapy, but it's certainly less invasive. Uh, here's a study using weaponized sound to destroy tumors, breaking down liver tumors in rats, and seemingly spurring the immune system uh, to go back and attack. Now, this is non-invasive in living animals. So the ultrasound only destroyed about 50 to 75% of the liver tumor volumes, but it the the immune cells were somehow activated to a greater degree by the sound maybe just by all of the sudden release of dead tumor material into the system but whatever happened the rats immune systems just bumped massively they're calling it histotripsy non-invasively focused ultrasound waves and it's very uh very new. It's, in fact, in a human liver cancer trial as we speak in the United States. And uh, this is a very promising option. Uh, Liver cancer is one of the top 10 causes of cancer-related death in the world, and uh, certainly in Asia, very high levels. This is a high-amplitude microsecond-length ultrasound pulse. It creates acoustic cavitation. uh, And, of course, we had long talk about cavitation about a year ago with reference to uh, closed head trauma and the uh, chronic damage that that causes and how cavitation, uh, this 
strange nano phenomenon where you get uh, just a sort of internal explosion in a bubble as it pops that destroys tissue and causes scarring inside the brain on the opposite side of the blow uh, and also on the front where the blow was as well. It bounce, as the brain bounces around, it creates this cavita- these cavitation bubbles and you get severe damage. Well, you can also generate that on purpose with this transducer, micro-bubbles that rapidly expand and then collapse, and the mechanical stressors kill the cancer cells, just like they kill the brain cells. So something very bad in one setting and very good in another. Let's just check the emails. Uh, This comes from uh, Tim. Interesting discussion about um, near-death experiences, which have long fascinated me. Are they simply manifestations of the dying brain or an actual spiritual being uh, having a human experience? I can't wait to find out. Well, Tim, I'm with you. I can't wait either. It's a fascinating idea and an extremely exciting one. Uh, One more thing about cancer. Going to have to be quick, so I will be quick. Uh, Some researchers were looking for antibiotics, and uh, this was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists. Uh, They were wandering around in the uh, jungle of Hawaii, and they found a uh, rare bacteria, uh, Lentia flavoricosa, and it's an actinomycetes class of bacteria. These are where most of our antibiotics come, uh, are actually from these fungus-like bacteria. And so they found a new one. They found this uh, strange bit of DNA. This rare actinomycetes produces molecules that are uh, active against human ovarian cancer, fibrosychroma, prostate, and leukemia. And uh, what's really interesting is this is a very, very sophisticated bit of DNA in the bacteria, it encodes for a supercluster, two different molecules that are later welded together in a very atypical chemical reaction, a molecule that very rare to find these things, these superclusters in biology. Why does the bacteria produce it? What good is it doing it? And wow, talk about repurposing something. It's being repurposed for whatever bacterial purpose into something that might treat cancer exciting, and you can be sure you'll hear about it from me when I have more to tell you. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.